Welcome to So It's a Show, a podcast where we attempt to keep up with Lorelai and Rory's pop culture references on Gilmore Girls. I'm the co-host. Ooh, and I'm part of the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad, and my name is Taylor. I like it. Is that some kind of vicious creature? Yeah, well, you can ask my ex-boyfriend how he feels about that, but... Uh, uh, but we won't ask him. So anyway, I am Taylor and I am here to talk to you today, not about snakes, though they will come up. They definitely will. Sorry. And what else are we here to actually talk about today? We're here to talk about Kill Bill. I feel like we need to have sound effects every time. We talk about sword fighting or any sort of, like, kung fu motioning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That would be Since good. Since you can't see kung fu motioning that we are doing right now right. Uh-huh. on a podcast, you need the sound effects. Yeah, that could be helpful. Yeah. Whole new format for us. Mm-hmm. This is a movie I never thought we would cover in the Gilmore Girls Clean Rating podcast, but... We watched them. <laughs> We're going to get into them. These are, once again, we discussed this in our last episode about Eminem. 2000s movies tangentially related to this year's Oscars. So much more recent than usually what we cover. Mm-hmm. This year, Quentin Tarantino is up for a bunch of awards for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And this movie is relatively recent compared to what we usually talk about. Yeah. Uh, it feels like it should be even older than 2003, because it's just something that's been in my consciousness for a long time. I mean, I was alive at that, but just feels like it's this set of movies that is, it's like modern day, I mean, not quite on the level of The Godfather, but it's just something that I always hear about. Mm. I don't know. I don't know Highly if respected, the same for way. sure. Yeah. I don't feel like it. they should be older necessarily, but like we talked about, this is the first time you or I have seen either of them. We were both definitely too young to be seeing these when they came out. Yeah. At least I think so. That's not to say there were probably some kids that went at our age to the movies, just not with our parents. Yeah, no, not <laughs> our parents. <laughs> yeah. But first, why are we even talking about this? Episode, Gilmore Girls episode 409, huh? Uh, sure are. And guess what? It's Ted Koppel's Big Night Out. (laughs) There's another alternate timeline of this podcast where we talk about Ted Koppel, but we decided there probably wasn't that much to talk about for (laughs) Ted Koppel. Okay, this episode first aired November 18th, 2003. And the IMDb plot summary, which this is a good happy medium, just letting you know. It's not one sentence, it's not a novel. Okay. At lunch, Richard introduces Rory and Paris to his old friend, who Paris is more than intrigued with. (laughs) Meanwhile, it's time for the Yale-Harvard game and the Gilmores go in style, happy flask and all, till Emily realizes she's been deceived for many years, which inadvertently pushes Lorelai into the arms of Jason. Huh? That's well done. Yeah. A little bit of a run on there at the end, but all accurate and actually a pretty good summary. Yeah. Yeah. And it touches on what we're talking about today. 
Mm-hmm. The so Yale when, game. yeah, when Lorelai and Rory come to Yale early to join Richard and Emily in their block of seats for the Yale Harvard football game, Emily has some opinions about Lorelai's outfit. Lorelai, what are you wearing? Uh, I'm sorry, you're horrified by what I'm wearing? You're wearing crimson. I'm not wearing crimson. Oh, she can't go like that. Crimson is Harvard's color. That's a very dangerous choice to make today, Lorelai. I'm not wearing crimson. I'm wearing red. Same thing. Very different. Look at Rory. Rory is dressed in Yale colors. Why can't you be like Rory? Rory looks perfect. Rory got dressed five minutes before you got here and she's wearing my sweater. Hey. Well, I could just as easily have been the one dressed right. You can wear my jacket. You have a samurai sword under those pom-poms, Mom? Because you're going to have to kill Bill me to get me into the arm. Yes, ma'am. There's something I think the whole show could be summarized in is basically when Richard and Emily are like, Rory did everything right. Why can't you be like Rory, Lorelai? And I'm like, uh, that's literally the whole conflict of the show in that five seconds. Yes. And I feel like that the wording that Emily used was definitely the writers pointing out <laughs> <laughs> that exactly because it felt like a little... A little nod to us, like, yes, we know, this is the conflict here, and Emily's just going to say it honestly this time. Yeah. Well, what did you think Lorelai meant when she asked Emily about her samurai sword? I mean, you can kind of, like, I kind of got from context, right? Kill Bill, samurai sword. The title sounds like, yes, someone could use a sword or a gun. I don't know, but they must use a sword. But that's all I really knew. Also, who is Bill? Who is Kill Bill? Who is Kinky Boots? I I wasn't <laughs> sure. Yeah, I am about at the same place. I think I would assume from context there is a samurai sword in Kill Bill. I have seen the poster also of her in the yellow jacket with a yep. sword. So that would make sense. But that's really all I knew. Yeah. Now we know a lot more. I'm very proud of us for taking on these movies. They were... I thought that they would be a lot less enjoyable. The gore... I did turn away when I knew I had had enough. Like, during one of the long, longest fight scenes. I was like, I'm good. I'm just gonna kind of, like, check Twitter for a second. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> How did you feel about the gore? I was in the same boat. I liked these movies a lot more than I expected. Tarantino is hit or miss for me. Mm -hmm. I really liked Inglorious Bastards, pardon the French, technically spelled not in, not correctly, so it's totally fine, right? <laughs> I thought Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was a little long and indulgent, and Django Unchained is something I respected but I didn't really enjoy. It was very violent. And so I was mm -hmm. kind of not dreading us talking about these movies because I kind of felt like I should probably watch these at some point anyway because they're kind of modern classics. Mm -hmm. But I was not really looking forward to it for my own personal enjoyment level. And then I really yeah. liked these movies. I was surprised, honestly. Yeah. I had actually seen part of the second movie in a hotel at someone's house. I'm not really sure, but I just know it was on. But then mm -hmm. I realized I only watched half of it because at a certain point I was like, wait, I didn't actually see if she killed Bill. 
<laughs> I realized so. I Does definitely. She kill Bill? Yeah, is that a thing? So I had not seen all of it, but I enjoyed it at the time, and I was surprised because mm-hmm. I don't like gore, but it was just so stylized. So, anyways, little, little mm-hmm. ahead of ourselves, but these movies came out early two thousands. Were they just a year or so apart? Actually, six months. Oh, wow. So it was originally pitched as one movie that Quentin Tarantino wrote and was going to direct. And then it was suggested by, and his name is not so popular now, Harvey Weinstein, Mm. um, who helped produce almost all of Quentin Tarantino's movies until just this recent one, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. He suggested that they split it into two parts. I think that's a great decision because this would be crazy long to watch in one sitting. And like I said, I thought Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was, in my opinion, pretty indulgent. Like, way too long. I might have liked it better in two parts where it was a little more focused than instead of one. So the first volume came out October 2003. The second one came out in April 2004. So then... My question then, if it was originally going to be one movie and they came out so quickly after each other, so they, and they really do feel like one movie, like, yeah. even now I'm trying to remember, what happened in the first one, the second one, where's that split? Does he count this as one movie for himself? I believe so, because okay. the volume one started with the fourth movie by Quentin Tarantino, but they didn't have the fifth movie by Quentin Tarantino right. at the start of volume two. Okay. What what's your do you have opinions on that as his opening to all his movies? I'm choosing to be diplomatic. <laughs> I that in itself I don't have a problem with. I think Quentin Tarantino as a person is very talented and I think he knows it. Yeah. And that's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) Am I allowed to be slightly less diplomatic? You say whatever you want. I can only (laughs) speak for myself. Yeah, that is just, it's such a turnoff to me to see that at the beginning, a fourth film. And I had forgotten that he'd done that because honestly, I'm not even sure what other Quentin Tarantino movies I've seen. These Mm -hmm. might be my first. Because again not typically my style it just it's it just seems so like about himself as opposed to a film by Quentin Tarantino and all these actors and other producers and like there's so many more people than just Quentin Tarantino so but like you said he's very talented so I feel like I can't say too much because he does put his talent where his mouth is. That's the phrase. (laughs) Um, Puts his mouth where his talent is. (laughs) Yeah. So he is, he's got a a little, a little magic sauce that, uh, yeah, you know, can't say too much about, but yes, that I was wondering too, because he's supposedly going to retire after 10 movies, but why the heck would you limit yourself in the number of projects you can take on? I don't understand it. That's a thing I don't understand either. I, in prepping for this, kind of reread some stuff about and with him in interviews. And he was saying 
he wants to go on to other creative pursuits after doing 10 movies. Like he Mm. might want to write theater or write books. And I mean, that totally, I can totally see that as something he would want to do, but I don't, I don't know. I don't fully understand how his mind works and why he started his career or early in his career declared, I will only make 10 films. And now only has one film left because once upon a time in Hollywood was number nine. And he has definitely thrown out more than 10 ideas. Because <laughs> in prepping for this, I was like, they were like, well, he's talked about an R-rated Star Trek movie. He's also talked about Kill Bill Volume 3. Yeah. And who's to say if he won't come up with something else. Yeah. So. Interesting. Well, sorry if I got us a little bit. No. This is that. fully okay. relevant. Okay, good. So these movies are about... A woman named Kill Bill, and she <laughs> just kidding. It, about we don't know her name because they keep bleeping it out. Mysterious. Mm-hmm. They just call her the Bride because mm-hmm. she was almost killed at her wedding. Mm-hmm. So they thought she was in a wedding dress. That's all the police and hospital staff knew about her. Mm-hmm. And we don't find out her name until the second movie. Yeah. Almost the end of the second movie. Yeah. But although Eagle Eyes, if you pay attention in the first movie, mm. you can see it on a plane ticket, but it flies by really fast. Oh, and it's very, very small. Cool. So okay. I did not notice that when we watched the movie. I read about that later. Okay. Nice. And also you can catch that her last name is actually kiddo so she gets called kiddo by bill in the first movie mm-hmm. in flashbacks and that's actually her last name which that was yeah. funny <laughs> yes i definitely thought it was just a nickname because she was much younger than him mm-hmm. yeah but she is on a murderous path of revenge because a bunch of people shot up her wedding but it was mm-hmm. actually her rehearsal but she was in her dress, and everyone was killed except for her. Yeah, and the opening shot of the movie is her bloodied in black and white, lying on the ground, and someone's about to shoot her, and she says, Bill, the baby is yours. Yes. Cut to chapter one, number two. What? what? You see her in Pasadena? And she is confronting Vivica A. Fox, another member of the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad, who helped carry out this assassination of the people at her wedding. And they just go at it right away, break, I don't know, a table, Mm -hmm. couch. And then the lady's daughter comes home, (laughs) put a little pause on that, and (laughs) such a tense moment And then they decide they're going to fight somewhere else. But Vivica Fox pulls a gun and the bride is like, is kiddo. Like, I mean, I guess, should we say what her name is? Doesn't matter. I think we can say it at this point. Hopefully you guys are cool with spoilers. Her name is Beatrix. Kiddo. Which you don't find out till the end. For the sake of simplicity and trying to keep this straight, we will be using both the bride and Beatrix. Sounds good. So Beatrix then throws a knife at her and she's dead. 
and her daughter had just walked in the room. And Beatrix tells the daughter, if you're mad about this, you can come look me up and kill me in the future. <laughs> and that is a tentative idea for Kill Bill Volume 3, officially on the record in interviews. <laughs> so maybe we'll see that one day. Uh, and she also says to her, just so you know, she had it coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is it's just a horrible horrible thing to see uh, a girl see her daughter or see her mom die at i think she was four they said yeah i mean that's horrible yeah but moving on <laughs> yeah but if that bothers you get ready <laughs> so um, yeah. then chapter two the blood splattered bride they go back in time and they show the examination of the scene of the crime where nine bodies are lying around. They find out, actually, the bride is not dead. How how they did not realize that? Um, not sure. They had yeah, her outlined, like right? You would check that, but um, she was in a coma. And they take her to the hospital, to the coma ward. Then another lady in the Deadly Willie Bear Assassination Squad shows up with an <laughs> eye patch. <laughs> And played by Daryl Hannah. Her name is L Driver. And she is going to poison the bride in her sleep, in her mm -hmm. coma. And Bill on the phone tells her not to. Yeah, and you get the idea pretty quickly. Bill's the leader. He's the one who shot Beatrix in the head. And she, in her lovely nurse's outfit, <laughs> over the top leaves and beatrix mm -hmm. wakes up thanks to a mosquito biting her yeah she wakes up she's devastated to find out she's no longer pregnant and she's there and then real shady nurse invites his friend in um so that they can rape her in her coma Mm -hmm. Apparently, he has done this to her before. I suspect she is probably not the only patient in the coma ward that this mm -hmm. has happened to. But when the gentleman... Actually, let's not even give him no. that credit. The scumbag, mm -hmm. uh, and that is just scratching the surface, he attempts to attack her. She attacks him first and bites off his tongue. And she kills the first two people she wakes up and sees <laughs> in yeah. the end, the guy and the and the nurse, and takes the nurse's car. Yes. A vehicle that we cannot name uh, and keep our <laughs> clean rating, but you might have also seen it in the Lady Gaga music video for Telephone. Oh my gosh. Had no also idea. Also can be seen there. That's funny. And she is, of course, her legs have atrophied because mm -hmm. she's been in a coma for four years. And she wills her toes to move. <laughs> and Leaning she... into the Quentin Tarantino foot fetish. <laughs> All I gotta say about that. Yes. And she, it says then she comes out of the truck 13 hours later and can walk. So she has worked on moving her legs. And she's ready to kill. Mm -hmm. 
We also take a little detour right now. Chapter 3, The Origins of Oren Ishii. We go back in time in an anime sequence, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And learn the backstory of another one of her Deadly Viper Assassination Squad members, played by Lucy Liu, and her story about how her mother was murdered and she was left for dead and she ended up killing the people who did that to her family. Yeah. Murdered her mom and her dad, right? believe so yeah yeah so similar to vivica fox daughter mm-hmm. chapter four the man from okinawa the bride goes to okinawa and gets a sword from hattori hanzo who had sworn he would never make a sword again but when she said that she needed it for bill he agreed and this guy is like the sword maker his swords are priceless so that was a big deal and he was like, it'll take a month. You should use that time to practice. Because, yeah, she's been in a coma for four years. She, like, her muscles have got to be very weak. But, I mean, she's all about martial arts and sword fighting. So, like, that muscle memory is still there. She still knows what to do. So then she goes and she finds Orenishi, who we get to see a little bit before Beatrix gets to her. And she is ruthless, and she's a leader of, like, all the crime family, not necessarily yeah, families, but crime groups, yeah. And her crazy 88s. Is that mm-hmm. what they're called? Yes. Basically, her, her team of incredible, cool fighters. <laughs> Who wear masks and tuxedos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty cool. And basically... In this final uh, final chapter of Volume 1, Showdown at the House of Blue Leaves. That's basically what it is. The bride shows up. She kills the crazy 88, then has a showdown with Lucy Liu, in which she cuts off her scalp. <laughs> yeah. And slices her head open. <laughs> and you see brain. <laughs> yes. There's some funny behind-the-scenes photos of that, because... They added to her head to get that and then used CG to shorten her forehead because obviously her head would look mega tall. Oh, yeah. Um, So the the behind-the-scenes photos are pretty funny of Lucy Liu. (laughs) That's really funny. I've not seen those. We, If you have good link, we'll have to share that in our Tumblr. Yeah, for sure. You know what was not fake, though? The blood in these movies, they did not CG that in, and they used over 450 gallons of fake blood in these two movies. That makes me sick. (laughs) (laughs) Gallons? Oh my word. Which, as violent as these movies are, I do think it's worth noting, a lot of it is not realistic. Like, so much of this is so bonkers, and it is very violent and bloody, and actually... The United States, the version almost certainly you and I both saw, I know I saw, had to have more edits than the Japanese version to get an R rating. And um, a lot of the reason that a lot of scenes are in black and white is because it's considered less, I I don't know what the right, less gory because you can't see the blood as distinctly, which... I don't know if I really buy that that really makes a huge difference, but that's what they had to do in the United States. And Mm -hmm. actually, there's a sidekick to Lucy Liu 
Sophie is the character's name. We mm. see one of her arms get cut off and it kind of like sprays blood everywhere, totally unrealistically. Mm-hmm. And in the Japanese cut, you also see her other car- arm kit cut off, but you do not in the U.S. version. Mm. Yeah. So there were more edits to the versions you and I watched. Okay. I actually thought the black and white, it did make it easier for me. Okay. So. There you go. There's one one woman's testimony. I assumed it was just an artistic choice. Like, oh, there must be a reason yeah, that this I is in black too. and white that I don't know about. Or, like, maybe it's an homage to something. And maybe there is another artistic reason for it. But what mm-hmm. I read, it sounds like that was one of the ways they got it to an R rating instead of an X rating. Or gotcha. NC-17. Gotcha. And also, we should mention, too, you know, the over-the-top fight scenes and blood splatters. These these movies really felt like samurai movies. Mm-hmm. So they definitely had that. Some of the sound effects and the zooming in and out felt very Japanese samurai movie. And I haven't watched a ton of those, but... Watching some anime about samurais, Samurai Shampoo is one, and then just seeing little clips, it's, I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's from Japanese samurai movies. So, it fits. Oh yeah, it definitely fits. And also, I think that contributes to it feeling less scary. Yeah, Because not that it isn't, like, I think there's a valid artistic reason there because it's an homage to older movies and it fits with the genre of the film. So I think it's totally artistically valid for it to be there. Mm -hmm. But it also, it just kind of makes you laugh when you listen to it. It doesn't feel like the violence is as real. Which, that's actually, Django Unchained, like, there's a a lot of really good things about that movie, but... I just had to out and out skip some scenes. It was really hard for me to watch because so it's about American slavery. And obviously all of that's terrible. There's no good part to that at all. But just the depiction of violence was so, so brutal. And mm-hmm. it, I, could, I can't separate anything from reality there. So even yeah. though you might, you could probably argue in that movie, some of this movie is over the top and unrealistic because it's that Quentin Tarantino style of blood spattery violence and like nobody, you know, that's not how bodily fluids work and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like for me, it like I can't watch it and separate it because it feels too real to me. Whereas this movie, not that it wasn't violent, it was very violent, but mm-hmm. it's almost funny and ridiculous in its yeah. own way. Yeah. The the fight with the crazy 88s, which supposedly there aren't 88. It felt like there were 88 of them, though. Toward the end of that battle, I had to turn away for a while. That was when I was checking Twitter because it was very long and gruesome. And somehow Beatrix was able to fight off all of them as well as a few of Lucy Liu's elite fighters, including, we'll talk about her more later, Go-Go. And then also defeat Lucy Liu. She somehow had the strength to do that. Yes. And one of the fun facts that I read about was that in that final fight, Lucy Liu has a line where she says something like, I hope you saved your energy. You may not last five minutes. But if you time the sequence in which the bride is fighting Lucy Liu, it's like exactly five minutes. 
Wow. Huh. Very cool. And just because we're in this spot, and then we'll get to film volume two, this final fight scene between Lucy Liu and Beatrix, I know I call her Lucy Liu, but I don't know what her, what is her? Oh, Renishi. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This scene really shows one of the influences for Kill Bill that we'll talk about more, Lady Snowblood. But even just hearing the name of these, of the movies, there's Lady Snowblood, there are two movies in the 1970s from Japan, and even just hearing the name of that, you kind of know why. And in their fight scene, it's outside, it's there's snow, obviously there's blood ends up on the snow. So anyways, but we'll talk more about that. But that was one of the key homages to Lady Snowblood. As, and the song that's playing is sung by the actress, and it was a song that was also used in Lady Snowblood. Oh, cool. Yeah. But, uh, volume two? Yeah. Oh, well, wait. One important detail. Oh. The bride leaves Sophie alive, sends her back to Bill. Well, sends her to the hospital and knows Bill will show up. (laughs) And the last thing we hear is Bill saying, does she know that her daughter is alive? (gasps) Yeah, that was pretty surprising. Yeah, I was surprised by that as well. Yeah. But uh, I do have to say, I forgot all about that until the end of the second movie. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Because so much happens. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you want to kick off volume two? Sure. Okay, so now, volume two, we get to go back and see a little more of the rehearsal wedding. And Beatrix's groom, like, I thought he would be a little cool, but... (laughs) He was not. He was, he was nice seeming, but cool factor, no such thing. No. He owned a record store. That's interesting. That's mm-hmm. neat, but it's not quite assassin cool. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so Bill shows up and Beatrix is very surprised, but happy to see him. And you don't really know how they're feeling, how Bill's feeling, what happened between the two of them that they haven't seen each other in so long because she says, oh, you tracked me down. Mm-hmm. And he acts happy for her, but after the Even com- meets her groom, mm-hmm. introduces himself as her father. Mm-hmm. Everybody seems to be getting along, no problem. But when the shop... Pulls back, you see the deadly viper. What are they? Deadly viper squad. <laughs> deadly, deadly viper Vi- assassination squad. Yes, I love saying that. Hey, divas, D V A S. We can call it that too. <laughs> yeah, I like it. The divas. You see, they are ready to enter the chapel and end that happiness. Yes, and she screams at Bill to make it stop, but. That is the end of Chapter 6, The Massacre of Two Pines, and we must move forward to Chapter 7, The Lonely Grave of Paula Schultz. Yeah, this is the part, this is where I started watching, when I watched oh. Volume 2. <laughs> this is where oh, I came Oh, this in. is a weird time to come in, To Yeah. Yeah. This is the, the chapter I saw. Um, <laughs> anyways, so she's already gotten the Vic- Vivica Fox... Lucy Liu. Lucy Liu in the first movie. Yeah. 
And now she is going to this guy who you can hardly believe was an assassin. I know. He's Bill's brother. His oh, name is... I did not know that. They mention it one or two times, like, in passing. Hmm. Because okay. at one point, I was watching oh, I... this with my dad, and we said, did he say he was his brother? I thought it was just a term, like, something they called each other because they were close. Oh, okay. Yeah. And his name is Bud, played by Michael Madsen. He is a bouncer at a strip club and is fired pretty much when we see him because he's sort of being a snot that I think it's valid. He's like, nobody's here. Who do I need to bounce? And anyway, that didn't yeah. go over well. Nope. So he comes back to his trailer out somewhere in Texas, I think. Somewhere yeah, in the I'll, Southwest. I think we're in El Paso again. Okay. And Beatrix is waiting under his trailer to try and kill him with her Hatari Hanzo sword. Looking like a ninja. Mm-hmm. But he knows she's there. And he shoots her with, is it rock salt, he said? Yeah. So yeah. it doesn't kill her. But, but it he, salt in the wound immediately. <laughs> yeah. She's bleeding. He sedates her. Thank you. I could not think of that word for some reason. <laughs> and buries her alive. Which, look, I don't ever, like, I don't have a list of ways I want to go. But I have a list of ways I don't want to go. <laughs> and being buried alive is top three for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Of ways I don't want to go. Just keep that in mind. I mean, you do have some time to, like, think things through, you know. Say your prayers. Yeah. I don't know. Seems better than drowning. Anyways, but why? Oof, that's also in my top three. <laughs> Let's just list all of them. Oh, man, we're getting into happy topics here. Um, <laughs> Kill Bill. Let's, uh, let's keep it upbeat. Yeah, upbeat. <laughs> So, she's in the grave of Paula Schultz, we see. Mm -hmm. Hence the chapter title. And L. Driver has given Bud a call and says, I heard you got the bride. And he's like, don't worry, I'm taking care of it. So, then L. Driver and Bud work out a deal where she's going to pay him a million dollars for Beatrix's Hatari Hanzo sword. Mm-hmm. That... Atari Hanzo, he said this is his best sword. And they both agree, mm -hmm. like, this is something something else. I don't mm -hmm. know how to tell what a good sword is, but they can. But before we get to, get to that, we got to do Chapter 8, The Cruel Tutelage of Pai Mei. Oh my, Pai Mei. What a treat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we start out hearing a lovely story about him from Bill, about how he massacred uh an entire what's the word for it monastery yeah with his five point palm exploding heart technique yeah yeah i thought and that was all legend yes i know nothing about it except in the context of this movie to my knowledge it's completely fictional right however if it is real don't do it to me, please. Because that would be a new way for me to not want to go. Uh, because it involves hitting pressure points, your heart explodes, and if you take five steps, you die. Yeah. I suppose you could just sit for the rest of your life in that one spot. 
We'll come back to that. <laughs> so I thought as he's telling the story, this is just some like crazy legend. But no, then Bill takes her to this out in the middle of nowhere place and says, all right, Paime, that guy I was just telling you about, he agrees to be your master. Have fun climbing up those steps and also later carrying water up and down those steps for your training. Bye. Mm-hmm. P.S. Paime hates white people and women. Have fun. <laughs> <laughs> and what ensues is a training montage of sorts. Mm-hmm. He is incredibly difficult, mm-hmm. but he quickly bests her in a kung fu match. Yep. And she basically has to completely submit herself to whatever he says with no complaint if she wants yeah. to learn anything. And he, you see her really trying to learn. You never see if she does it. The three-inch punch, putting the tips of her fingers against a piece of wood and then punching from there. Mm-hmm. And uh, that messes up her hand. And then trying to eat rice later with the chopsticks just falling out of mm-hmm. out of her hands. But oh. she does learn through Paime. She succeeds through his training. Mm-hmm. And all and... his crazy beard flippings <laughs> over his shoulder. Yes. Stroke and, it, and toss. noise every time yeah. he tosses his beard. Yep. And then we jump back to the coffin and she's using that three-point technique to get out of the coffin. Mm-hmm. Three-inch technique. I was combining mm-hmm. the five-point heart explosion <laughs> with the three-inch wood-cracking wood punch, yeah. Uh, so she gets out of that grave and then <laughs> seeing her walk across the street toward a diner, dirt just flying off of her. <laughs> oh my goodness. If I would have been that guy behind the counter, I would have like pulled a gun out and been like, are you a zombie? Mm-hmm. So then chapter nine, Elle and I, Elle comes to Bud's trailer, double crosses him. There's a deadly snake inside. A black mamba, which is yes. Beatrix's assassin name. Yes, all of them have snake names. One of them is Cottonmouth. I think there's a Copperhead. Anyway, can't keep them all straight. So Bud is dead. And then Beatrix shows up. And they fight. They fight in a rather comical moment of violently comical moment. Beatrix says, now how did you lose your eye to Paime again? And Elle had said something insulting to him and he immediately pulled out her eye. Just plucked it out with his bare hand. Mm-hmm. They ended up in a sword fight because Bud actually had a Hatari Hanzo sword in his trailer. Mm-hmm. And Beatrix ends up pulling out the other eye. And yeah. leaves Elle in the trailer with the snake. Yeah, I just... I was surprised that she left her there because she could have gotten out and survived. Like, just walked to... There had to have been other people around if Bud lived out there. She With no eyes? Yeah, she, she could have wandered and called out and someone would have found her. Could have. Theoretically. I don't know. I just think uh, I, I think Beatrix, she was there to kill all of them. Surprised she left her. 
I guess she figured the snake would do the job. Yeah. Fair point. One black mamba or the other black mamba. (laughs) (laughs) Fun fact about that snake, it was a black mamba, but they had taken out his venom glands. (gasps) Oh. Oh, I don't think I could do that as an actor. Yeah, I mean, the scenes... it wasn't a snake when the, the when Bill got when Bud well, got bit. That yeah. was you know. I'm sure CGI, that was. I don't but know. like even being there with the snake, I don't think I could yeah. do that. Yeah, they filmed a lot of the scenes separately though, because you don't see a person always in the shot of the black mamba. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so now we're just down to Bill. The whole yeah, title last chapter, of the face movie. to face. Take it away. All right, she knows a guy who Bill's friends with, goes down to Mexico, gets some info from him, and she tracks Bill to a gorgeous hotel, his house? I don't know. I think it's a really nice house. Yeah. And she opens up that door, walks in the house, and Bill is outside with her daughter. And... She is shocked, but she just knew who it was, and Bill then just starts referring to her right away as mom. And it was an interesting scene. Beatrix seems very chill for just meeting her daughter, whom she didn't even know was alive. Also, BB, a.k.a. baby Beatrix, I guess, <laughs> she's very chill about meeting her mom for the first time. Yeah. She knows exactly who she is. Mm-hmm. And... She'd seen her photos. Was excited to see her, but didn't seem to have any any shock about it. And she's four years old at this point, so it's not like she doesn't remember a time without her mom. Yeah. Yeah, so they talk and play, and she watches a samurai movie with... Or wait, no, was it a western movie? her daughter i think it was some sort of samurai or kung fu movie yeah yeah so fitting watches that with bb puts her to bed comes downstairs to talk to bill and they have it out yeah he gets a truth serum in her and asks her a few questions not oh yeah he oh yeah and the big one is he asks her why did you leave like what happened because we still don't know that. Mm-hmm. And it does a, uh, it takes you to a flashback then of her final mission when she was on a ship supposed to murder a woman. And she buys a pregnancy test because she gets sick and thinks she might be pregnant. And she finds out that she is pregnant. And what a moment that was when the bodyguard of the woman... Um, they, they figured out that Beatrix was there, and she comes to her room, and Beatrix is like, listen, lady, because they're right, they both have a gun pointed at each other, you don't know, they could both just kill each other, and Beatrix is like, I just found out I was pregnant, and I just want to save my daughter's life, can I leave, you can leave, like, I'll go. And the lady, like, picks up the pregnancy st- test, and they have some, like, comical moments of, like, yeah. Because it doesn't say pregnant, not pregnant, you know, plus, minus, two lines, one line, I don't know. So she has to, like, look at the box, holding her shotgun, (laughs) playing to Beatrix. And she lets her go. They both leave. And then Beatrix disappears from there. 
Because she wants to raise BB in a way yeah. that she's separate from Bill's world. And she knows that if she stays with Bill, BB's never going to be safe. Yeah, she's going to get trained. Mm-hmm. And she'll always be part of that world and exposed to it. So she left yeah. for that reason and wanted to have a boring life with Tommy, is his name, in Texas, who owns the record store. Mm-hmm. Working at a record store. And Bill goes on a long monologue about how Superman is always Superman, even when he's dressed as Clark Kent. Even if you put on, I think, Arlene Plimpton was going to be her name. <laughs> In her fake identity, he's like, you always would have been Beatrix and a killer at heart. Yeah. And she admits that she didn't think it would actually work, but... Yeah. Because she was going to try. And you expect that they're going to go out on this huge samurai sword battle. Yeah. But twist, she kills him with a five-point palm heart explosion. Yes, and he says he taught you, and she says, of course. And Bill takes five steps and dies. And I'm going to say I don't think he would have survived anyway because there was blood already coming out of his mouth before he even took steps. Yeah, that's okay. That's true. Yeah. And then she and BB ride off into the sunset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is really sweet. Like, she gets her... She not only, like, she got her revenge, <laughs> but then she actually gets something real out of it and she gets her daughter. Yeah. So that's Kill Bill, Volume 1 and 2. Whew. Very long plot summaries we just gave you. We understand. But it's sort of hard to explain without these what these movies are about, what happens in them, unless you want to be very high level. Like, the bride goes on a revenge to kill the five people who destroyed her life. And or, she does it. <laughs> you can be very detailed. We yeah. took the second option. Yeah, we did. Okay, so I mentioned before the influence of Lady Snowblood. Mm -hmm. That's, I watched the trailer for it. We'll include that in our Tumblr. And it's, this woman, her face, so frightening. She had such a good, like, focused, angry, but, like, calm face. Very mm -hmm. eerie. Good, good person to play the role. You know, there are lots of influences for this for Kill Bill samurai movies and things, but Lady Snowblood was, that was the most, I would say, <laughs> based on it. The Lady Snowblood, she takes off on a revenge mission to kill the criminals who raped her mother and killed her father and brother. So, similar. That also sounds a little like Oren Ishii's story, trying to get revenge mm. on the people who killed her family. Yeah, very true. And then there is that final battle um, in the snow and her singing the song. So similar story, just a female samurai, which is unique in and of itself, and a revenge mission. But it looked like a cool movie. It looked more bloody than Kill Bill, though, I think. Well, if you want to do a little more deep dive into influences, there are about 16 zillion homages in this movie to other movies, <laughs> which is true Tarantino style. Mm. But some of the more fun ones that I found, the bleeping out of her name for most of the movies mm -hmm. is 
a an homage to the Man with No Name trilogy, Sergio Leone's movies like A Fistful of Dollars mm-hmm. and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Clint Eastwood never had a name in those movies. Oh, okay. Um, her yellow and black jumpsuit is a tribute yeah. to Bruce Lee. <laughs> and another fun one is that Pai Mei is based on a real person named Bak Mai. My apologies if I did not get that pronunciation exactly correct. He was a real kung fu master, and he was known for developing the white eyebrow kung fu technique, which <laughs> is an over-exaggerated feature on Pai Mei in this movie. Yes, they're like a like a Fu Manchu, but for your eyebrows. <laughs> mm-hmm. How long they go? Yep, Pai Mei, He has been used in a ton of movies, Japanese movies. In the Shaw Bros movies, in Wu-Tang Clan music, and ancient and Chinese history, too. But he started the White Lotus Clan. But in all of these, he has the long, wispy white hair, beard, eyebrows, mustache. His eyebrows aren't always as crazy as the ones in Kill Bill, but he is always flicking his beard. And he has a mouth on him. Like, he throws insults. And defeats all of his enemies, and he's the bad guy in in other movies. And in Kill Bill, he kind of is the bad guy. All these people are the bad guy. They're assassins. But... Nobody's a good guy, is maybe a better way to put it. Not everybody's the baddest, for lack of better grammar. But (laughs) nobody is good. No. So, yeah, he's the... The bad guy in in those other movies. But that was fun. I didn't know that he was in other movies. It was cool to see him being portrayed differently. We'll include a YouTube video that I found about him, a little brief history of him. That's cool. One more fun fact about Pai Mei. The actor who plays Pai Mei, Gordon Liu, also plays the leader of the Crazy 88 in the first movie, Johnny Moe. Oh, You wouldn't know just from watching the movies because in the first movie, he's wearing a mask and a tuxedo. And in the second movie, he's wearing very big fake eyebrows and a huge beard and wig and kung fu robes. So you would not realize that it's the same character or at least or same actor. At least I didn't. But one last fun fact about Pai Mei for you. Yeah, I didn't know that. I am proficient in Tiger Crane style, and I am more than proficient in the exquisite art of the samurai sword. <laughs> so, Gilmore Girls, we gotta talk about. Oh, yeah. Season 5, another episode of Gilmore Girls. Season 5, episode 17. Yes, Pulp Friction. Can you figure out the inspiration for that episode name? Yeah, that is where Rory goes to a Quentin Tarantino-themed party. With Robert. Yes, Logan is there, drama ensues. But, oh my goodness, this was so fun to watch after watching this movie, because there are so many people dressed up as... um, I mean, of course, everyone's dressed up as Quentin Tarantino characters, but... A lot of people are dressed up as Kill Bill characters. Yeah, because it's all <laughs> all the movies that had come out before this episode aired that are nodded to at some point. So you see Elle Driver with her eye patch Nurse, go by. Uh-huh. Tons of crazy 88 warriors. 
Yes, this is Finn's birthday, and he is dressed as John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. We also have an Uma Thurman in a yellow jumpsuit, an Uma Thurman as a bride, an Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> I did see a Pai Mei. Yes. <laughs> and Robert, I think, cleverly goes as dead extra number two. Yeah. Which sums up any Quentin Tarantino movie. <laughs> Maybe Bud was in there. I did see some cowboy hats. Mm. I don't know if that is if there were cowboys featured in other Quentin Tarantino movies, but sadly, most of my Quentin Tarantino viewing are the movies that came out after this episode. Oh, okay. So I'm sure if Gilmore Girls were doing this today, you would have nods to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and um, the World War Two. Nazi hunters like that Brad Pitt plays in Inglorious Bastards, but um, you do not see those, unfortunately. No. But, and then we have Rory, who's dressed as Gogo, one of Lucy Liu's, her deadliest warrior. Mm-hmm. And I never knew that that was who Rory was dressed up as. That was awesome mm-hmm. to finally understand. Yes, with a ball and chain walking around. Mm hmm. And Robert and, uh, I assume Robert and Colin and Logan probably helped throw this party for Finn. But they had a great attention to detail. They have the band that is playing in Kill Bill in the restaurant where the Crazy 88 scenes happen. Oh, I didn't catch that. They're playing the same song on top of the bar. Obviously, not the real same band, but, like, they have a band playing their songs up there, and there's just a lot of attention to detail. They also say people there are dressed as Harvey Weinstein and Mira Sorvino, which, obviously, nobody will be dressing up as Harvey Weinstein today, but (laughs) it makes sense, though, because he had produced all of his movies. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's fun to see. So should we talk about how this fits into how the other reference fits into the World of Gimmel Girls? Yes, please, because I need to talk this out with you. <laughs> okay. I mean, basically, I don't know, Lorelai maybe had recently seen Kill Bill, and Emily's a woman, so Beatrix, female warrior, um... Yeah, samurai sword. That was her weapon of choice. Basically, but also, too, like, you're not only going to have to be, like, good with a sword, Mom. You're going to have to be the greatest assassin (laughs) in the world to get me to wear that Yale sweater. I think, I mean, I know what Lorelai is trying to say. You're going to have to force me into that jacket, Mm -hmm. is the gist of what she's saying. But I am... Still not 100% sure why she chose Kill Bill. There's, like, no scene in Kill Bill where it's, like, someone is forced to wear a jacket that I remember. (laughs) Or, like, no one is forced into any clothing. Like, Mm -mm. I feel like there's nothing specific to Kill Bill that has to do with this jacket or Emily making her change her clothes or anything along those lines. Maybe I'm just being too literal. Yeah, you know, you are right, though, in thinking that way, because a lot of times there is a specific scene that Amy Sherman-Palladino is referencing with mm-hmm. these. So, yeah, I think this one is more general, 
But I do think, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Beatrix was, she was stronger than everyone. Like, her will was what happened. <laughs> so, like, Emily was going to have to be extra strong. But I agree, yeah, it's not a specific, like, scene from the movies or anything like that. Yeah. Well, and especially because Lorelai capitulates so quickly. I mean, it makes the joke funnier in Gilmore Girls, but it's such a hyperbole compared to what she actually does. She says, you're going to have to force me into that jacket Mm -hmm. under pain of death with a samurai sword. And she's like, eh, okay, then I'll do it. (laughs) Yeah. Although perhaps it is that female connection. The deadly viper... Emily squad that's going on here. Yeah, her and the D.A.R. Yeah. I don't know if I would call this a fun fact, but I did read that in these two movies, aside from the flashback sequence Mm -hmm. when Oren Ishii's family is killed by some mobsters, every single death in these movies is at the hands of a woman. You never Hmm. see a man kill anyone except in that flashback. Which I didn't put together on my own. But, like, after I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, I can't think of a single one. I love that. So maybe it is that sort of female connection of female... I don't know if empowerment's the right word. I don't... I mean, you can... Or strength, I mean... Strength, I think. Yeah. Obviously, I don't think we should all go out and be assassins, but I do think there is something to be said with the movie about how a woman who is betrayed and, we know, raped and Mm. um, her child is taken away from her then goes on to get revenge on the people who hurt her. I definitely think there's an element of female strength in there Mm. as a theme. Yeah. Yeah. So, Kyla? So, Taylor? That's our show? That's our show! Woo! Okay, before I forget, we have gotten a bunch of new reviews. (gasps) Tell me more! I will. So, from Natalie on Stitcher. I don't have to kill Bill you to tell me more? Nah, (laughs) not this time. She says, great listen. Pairing this with the show is perfect. I love hearing about all the meanings behind the pop culture references that I don't understand. And I'm so glad to hear that. That's the whole point. You can love Gilmore Girls even more. On Apple Podcasts, we've got from Ali Bali. (laughs) I love that. Or Ali Bali. Either way, it's fun. I love this podcast. I'm the biggest Gilmore Girls fan debatable i don't know i'm I'm a pretty big fan but uh okay uh we'll let slide and i love knowing what these things mean good great we do too nicole without the h i didn't know there could be an an h in nicole you can after the c n-i-c-h-o-l-e interesting Mm -hmm. but she doesn't have it so so don't have to worry about it. She says, I've recently been watch I recently been rewatching Gilmore Girls and found this podcast. Yes, you should always be rewatching Gilmore Girls. Yeah. Good job. Um, I love it. It's fun to dig deep into some of the pop culture references the characters make in the show because it gives you more insight into what the writers were thinking as they wrote the dialogue. Amy Sherman Paladino. <laughs> I feel like I'm watching the show for the first time again, listening to this podcast because Aww. all the information. 
Yay. Wow. That's the greatest compliment. Yeah. I mean, there have been so many kind people, but that is just, wow, that's a fun thought to be able to feel like you're watching it again for the first time. Yeah. Because you really, I mean, you really understand it once you understand the references they're talking about. So mm-hmm. that's cool. And then last one, uh, so much fun, always makes you smile. I find it very interesting and I have fun listening as I learn more about pop culture and Gilmore Girls. Oh, thanks, guys. Yeah, so I feel the flutter reviews. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Thanks, guys. That's I obviously that is good to hear because that's what we're hoping to do. Hoping to make Gilmore Girls even more fun and enjoyable, and also be informative because what the heck are they talking about half the time? Yeah. So thank you, guys. We appreciate it. So you know where to find us, all your podcast options, obviously, mm-hmm. if you're listening. And we've got our tiny letter, our Tumblr, our Twitter, we're so it's a show mm-hmm. everywhere. Links in the episode description. Here's a teaser for our next step. Don't play that piano. Don't you see the sign? There was supposed to be a sign. There is a sign. Well, it's not a very good sign. The house was built in 1906 by Stanford White. That's it. The house was built in 1907, and he was a protege of Stanford. Getting a migraine.